We return to Matthew chapter 10. We pick up this morning at verse 16. We will consider up until verse 24 this morning, but it will be apparent even as we stop this morning at 24 that by no means are we exhausting the section. And uh, you may certainly read ahead for upcoming Sunday should the Lord tarry as we continue in the text. I will advise you that next Lord's Day morning, based upon the information we preach today, we will be chasing a particular point of emphasis on Christmas Eve as represented in Mark 10:45. So we're taking a jump from Matthew 10 to Mark 10, so we can go from Mark 10 back to Matthew 10, the first Sunday of the new year. You with me? Sure. Matthew 10:16 to 24. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Matthew 10, 19, 20, two of the most abused verses in all the Bible, especially in Bible colleges. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my sake, my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, Flee ye into another, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Father, we call upon you as our Lord and God recognizing that in Christ you have led the way of life on earth for us all. And we pray that you would help us particularly today because by no means is our text uh, seasonally happy. In fact, it is indeed a warning to us to be prepared at times to take it on the chin for the honor and the glory of Christ. So help us as we begin to work the section to the benefit of our souls, especially as we move through this holiday period in the next couple of weeks. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. 
You all know that the team mascot for the University of Michigan is the Wolverine, considered to be one of the most fierce animals in the entire northern section of the world. The team mascot of the University of Wisconsin is similar. Uh, they're called the Badgers. In a good fight, the Wolverine would beat the Badger, as the Michigan team usually beats the Wisconsin team, but nonetheless, they picked the name, not me. The team mascot of the University of Georgia is the Bulldogs. You know that there are multiple Tigers and Lion mascots. There's even a Buffalo. The team mascot of the people of God is the sheep. Today we are grappling with the depiction of the Lord's people and the Lord's servants as sheep. When the decision was made to reintroduce packs of wolves to the Wild West a few years ago, ranchers went ballistic. They knew that transplanted predators would negatively impact their herds and flock, hence their bottom line. Just a few wolves in the midst of a large flock of sheep can wreak havoc. But just think of what a few sheep in the midst of a large pack of wolves would produce. You don't need a degree in biology to understand that the latter scenario is especially bleak, and yet it is the latter scenario that Jesus refers to and paints in portrait for the apostles as they are sent out in ministry. They had joined team sheep. And Jesus said to them, you who are full, uh, few in number are literally surrounded by a pack of wolves. Oh boy, that sounds like. When you think about the authority of Christ and the accountability to Christ that the apostles received along with the pronouncement of judgment as studied last week at verse 15, you might think that Jesus would have named his team of men the Bulldogs, the Apostolic Tigers, the Apostolic Wolverines or at least the apostolic badgers. But no, Jesus called his team sheep. So today we begin to talk about team sheep, and we will end this year and move into the new year, if the Lord should tarry, uh, speaking under this banner, this portrait of the Lord Jesus, of his people, and of his servants as team sheep. Now, the Greek word probaton can refer to any domesticated four-legged animal, but most usually refers to sheep. The word underscores 
the idea of domesticated or tame, as it were. And in the depiction of the Lord Jesus, the tame team is operating before uh, the terror-fying team. Tame before terror is the way of Christ's first advent. Tame before terror is the way of Christ's first advent. Not second advent, and we're not talking about that today. But tame before terror is first advent set, uh, first advent stuff for Christ himself and for his team of apostles and ultimately his people by way of application. Now, most scholars agree that the Lord's blunt communication here uh, is indeed long-term ministry instruction for the Twelve, and that those that represent the Lord's interest, uh, first among the Jewish people, and then uh, as they represent the Lord's uh, interest uh, around the world. And, and I, I can't take any great argument with that. Certainly, the Lord was preparing them uh, not only for the short-run mission, but also for the time when the apostles would, at least 11 to 12 of them, 11 of 12 of them would represent the Lord Jesus after his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, but if we are to benefit, and I mean you and me, if we are to benefit uh, from this kind of a text, uh, we need to pay careful attention to clarify the issues as presented there and then so that we can then make application here and now. I don't know of any section of the Word of God where it's more important to pay attention to there and then before you make application to here and now uh, than this section. Uh, let me just illustrate by cherry-picking something out of the text as read. Look at verse 23 for just a, a quick moment, uh, 1023. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Jesus told the twelve that they would not completely cover the 200 cities and villages in Galilee with the kingdom message until he would personally come after them in follow-up. Now, you will, you will search uh, a thousand commentators and never hear in any of those commentators what I'm about to say because the commentators just automatically jump to the coming of the Son of Man that you and I talk about most when he comes in power and glory. But you cannot understand that phraseology in that context. You cannot interpret that section in that particular way and come away with any succinct meaning. I would suggest that the best way to understand the last part of verse 23 is in light of the next commissioning, not of 12, but of 70. The Lord first commissioned 12, and then he commissioned 70, they represent him in the kingdom offer. And then, of course, it goes on from there to focus upon the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what is being said to the apostles, the 12, in Matthew chapter 10, concerning the cities to which they were going to minister uh, and, uh, and uh, the fact that uh, the Son of Man would come? Uh, I would suggest uh, Luke 10.1, which gives you the, the indication of the same thought, but in different words, uh, at the commission of the 70. Let me just read it for you. If you can turn quickly, go ahead, but I'm not going to be there long. Uh, Luke 10, 1, the commission of the 70. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place. Now, that's exactly what he did with the 12. And now he's doing more with the 70 two by two. But notice the last phrase, again the verse. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. The apostles were sent into a city uh, kind of like a, a setup team, kind of like a preparatory team, and that the Lord Jesus himself would follow after them in the cities where they had gone. And so that's the way in which we would understand the sense of verse 23. Now that said and understood by means of interpretation allows us then to return to verse 23 by way of principle. The principle of missional activity and the Lord's return following has, as you know, prophetic applications concerning the period between the two advents, particularly to the Jewish witness forecast in the book of the Revelation concerning the time of the Great Tribulation. What did I just say? I just said that Jesus broad strokes here a principle for his servants when talking to his apostles. The context of that is clear by way of interpretation. As to application, some of the things that Jesus will talk about in this section, you will be able to see in your Bible, in the book of Acts, as the apostles exercise themselves on the mission of Christ, and they begin to feel the pushback and the persecution that was given to them by way of forewarning in what we would call the apostolic era in the first century. And uh, many of the things said will apply to that period of time, uh, which is the apostolic period of which John the Apostle was the last to live on earth before he died. And then there were no more apostles of the Lord Jesus in the context as the Bible utilizes that word. Nonetheless, the principle of missional purpose, the principle of missional opposition and persecution can also be applied to God's people beyond the period of the apostles. And there have been pockets and periods of church history where the kinds of serious persecution that Jesus relates to in this text uh, have uh, indeed been experienced uh, by the servants of God and the people of God, uh, uh, sometimes for extended periods of time. And then, and this of course would be the third realm of application from the interpretation to the apostles, and then I'm saying to you that the most, the most pregnant 
uh, application has to do with what the book of the Revelation tells us is coming, that there's going to be a period of phenomenal tribulation on the earth, and that the nation of Israel will once again recognize the Lord their God, and there will be 144,000 Jewish witnesses that will surround the globe uh, with the gospel of Christ. And many people will come to know the Lord, and those Jewish missionaries, many of them, if not all of them, uh, surrender their lives and martyrdom for the cause of Christ. And so what Jesus says in Matthew 10, beginning at verse 16, had direct uh, meaning uh, for the 12 apostles commissioned at that time, had a, a greater sense of application in meaning uh, to the 11 apostles uh, that uh, continue to serve after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it has additional application in church history for God's servants and God's people uh, that have now been active in missional purpose for some 2,000 years. And then it will have even greater application uh, in the coming age uh, of the Great Tribulation. And I would just remind you that from our perspective... We are not on earth right now waiting for the great tribulation. We are not on earth right now waiting for the great tribulation. We're on earth right now looking for Jesus. And that's the hope of the church. So all I'm saying is, is that that kind of, of, uh, of uh, understanding of interpretation and then the points and legitimate applications are important to get a hold of uh, as you work your way through such a section of, as this. And because people don't pay attention uh, to those kind of, of nuances, then when you come to a passage of Scripture in which the verse basically says, don't worry about studying anything or preparing anything before you speak, uh, just stand up and God will fill you. God will take care of it. Uh, I heard that from people after one, one semester in Bible college who said they had learned enough and they were ready to go out now and preach Christ. Well, they wouldn't preach much of Christ because they didn't know enough to fill a thimble. But nonetheless, they thought they were fully prepared. And, uh, and some of them actually told me to my face, uh, you know, we believe that God will fill our mouth. And I said, well, I believe your mouth will be filled, but I don't believe it will be of God. But nonetheless, I'm just simply saying that people get screwy ideas from Bible verses. Have you ever noticed that? People get goofy ideas from Bible verses. And there's some Bible verses in the section that we're starting today in which people get some really goofy ideas from. And so please uh, allow me to say again that word, that word, that word that we must not forget, that word that we must not forget, and that's that word context. And in the context of this passage, Jesus is commissioning 12 men to do what he's been doing, to preach and to teach, and to affirm that preaching and teaching by means of healing. It is impossible to understand the sheep-wolf picture that is drawn, impossible to misunderstand, I should say, and once you do grab a hold of that, uh, you uh, certainly would not say that anybody who is on team sheep would expect that life would just be a bed of roses. Uh, the Lord's ambassadors were taught to expect opposition. The fact was so impressed upon the minds of young John Wesley that he often thought himself to be lacking 
if not verbally assaulted after the sermon, and at times beaten. When Wesley preached, if everybody said, good sermon, he thought he did something wrong. He only thought he did a good job preaching if people said, well, that was the worst thing I ever heard in my life. And if he took some verbal assault, he thought that was a good thing. And if he got a beating outside the back door of the church, he thought that was a good thing. I, I just want you to know that, that uh, you can try that if you want to, but I don't know that my flesh would allow me to stand there and take it. But I'm just saying. That was John Wesley. I love the story of Theodore Epp. Some of you old-timers will remember that name. He used to be the, the director of the Back to the Bible broadcast years ago when radio was such a big thing, Theodore Epp. And, uh, and uh, one day at the Back to the Bible broadcast headquarters in, the, in Nebraska, uh, Theodore Epp uh, called the staff together and he said, we have to have an emergency prayer meeting today. Put down all the work you're doing. We're going to come together and we're just going to pray and we'll be on our knees before God as long as it takes, but we're going to pray. And the staff began to fuss as staffs do in that kind of an environment and they said, well, what? What happened? What's going on? You know, uh, did we fail to pay our bills? Are we are we in trouble? Did somebody you know? Are we being sued? You know, what's going on? And uh, when they got to the to the meeting, the prayer meeting, Theodore Epps said, "We've gone a whole week, a whole week, without one negative communication directed towards this ministry. We must not be doing God's work." We're going to have a prayer meeting because everything's going good? Right. That's the world's sense of copacetic. The drug of riches. The drug of everything's going great causes many of God's people to fall asleep. Listen, if you know that you belong to God and you're living that way, then not everything around you is happy, happy, happy. There's a way for you to be happy in the midst of it, whether it's happy or not. But any child of God that's living it is not going to have things always happy, happy, happy. There's a wide range of application as you work from there and then to here and now and even beyond. And that becomes then the, the focus. Starting today, it will include next week, though from Mark 10.45, you'll understand why then and then back to Matthew 10 in the next set of verses in this section, all under the banner of Team Sheep. Team Sheep. Let's begin this morning by seeing what Jesus said about the mindset of the true follower towards opposition. The mindset of the true follower toward opposition. Verse 16, Behold... I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, any child looking at that verse could tell you the four named animals that the Lord uses to teach you a great spiritual truth. Jesus did not mince words. His true followers should expect opposition, and he uses four named animals to teach us concerning not only that opposition, but to teach us the posture that the Lord's servants and his children should take. The mindset of the true follower should take towards the reality of opposition. The cunning cautiousness of a snake is commended by our Lord, along with the harmlessness of a dove. I get the word mindset from the word wise, verse 16. Therefore, wise as serpent. Mindful as a serpent. You could use the word wise. You could use the word wary. If you've ever caught a snake of any kind, you know that snakes, all of them, are very wary. They're very aware of their surroundings. They're constantly testing the air. They're constantly engaged in moving their heads and around. And when you try to approach them, they are quick to flee unless they're backed up into a place where they cannot. And if you want to catch a snake, you have to positionalize yourself in such a way to get on his backside to grab his tail. And if he's a certain kind of snake, you want to go, to go, want to go quickly towards the top of that head and secure it so that he doesn't turn around and bite you. But nonetheless, snakes are well known to be wary, in that sense wise, wary of the world around them, cautious of the world around them. The disciples' mindset is to be wary of the world around them. Tremendous difference in the life of my son, pre-military training, after military training. Pre-military training, he could go through a, a place and was oblivious as to who was around them and what was going on. After military training, he knew everybody that was near him. He knew everybody that was in the room. He knew what was going on, and he saw things that I, I completely missed. One of the things that policemen are taught, one of the things that military people are taught, is to be aware of your surroundings. And many, many times, even in the ebb and flow of just routine life, people are encouraged to be aware of their surroundings. Well, uh, disciples of Christ, servants of Christ, are to be aware of the world around them because it is portrayed by our Lord as hostile. Even when kind, hostile. Furthermore, the disciples' mindset is to be peaceable and pure before the world, hence the dove. The disciples' mindset is to be ever trusting of the Lord in difficult circumstances. Back to verse 23, which we looked at 
The disciples were encouraged not even to force or to fight to stay in a place where persecution arose. If not received, they were to simply pack up and go elsewhere. They weren't to stand up and say, God called me here, I'm staying. No. They kept their tent stakes slightly pounded in the ground so that they could pull up quick if need be and go elsewhere according to the instruction of their Lord and God. That's a profound instruction. That is a profound sense that even helps us in, as Christians to think our way through some of the most political, dicey things that are afflict, afflicting our nation today. Some of the forcing that Christians are trying to do upon worldlings politically is just absolutely stupid. And it's going to come back to bite us because we are not following the Lord's instructions for living in hostile territory. We are not the deciders. Our posture is set by our Lord. Wary as serpents, harmless as doves. The second thing here, and it's amazing to think way through it, is the modes of opposition against the true followers of Christ. The modes of opposition. And they are multiplied. You have in verse uh, uh, 17, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. The word is in the Greek, Sanhedrin. And many of you know what that was back on that day. Uh, the unusual thing about the use of the word Sanhedrin here is it is plural. And so it says Sanhedrins, meaning uh, uh, that one back in that day, as well as others, groupings of officiality that comes together with both religious and, uh, and, uh, and, and political power. Uh, they will be delivered up to councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues. And uh, that word, of course, has been reserved uh, most often in our minds for uh, the Jewish uh, places of worship. And that's not wrong, but here the word synagogue, I think, is referring to the idea of assemblies, that's what the word means, assembly. And uh, it's all about assemblies of many different kinds uh, uh, that have a religious orientation uh, that stands in opposition to uh, the Lord's mission as assigned. It reminds us that opposition to Jesus Christ and to his ambassadors and to his family will come at times from religious circles. You and I should expect to be opposed by religious folk. Should expect that. And, verse 18, ye shall brought, be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. The opposition will come at times from government and agencies, officiality in the context of the world in which we live. The purpose of such opposition in the will of God is that there might be testimony to the truth of Christ and against those that prove to be hardened adversaries. 
Nonetheless, we should expect some difficulty from the government. We shouldn't expect the fact that the government is going to make all decisions that are pleasing to us or that uh, uh, go well with our brand of people. Team Sheep. We should not expect that. We should be preparatory towards that in our lives. Uh, but, says verse 19, when they deliver you up, take no thought as to how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak, for it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. So, if they come and get me and take me to Lansing and I get a chance to speak to the governor, I'm not supposed to worry about the aspect of, of, of what text I should prepare. I should just go and trust the Lord that in the moment when I, uh, when I go face-to-face uh, -face with the governor, that uh, God will give me the things that I need to say in that moment of time to represent him well, to represent this local church well, and to leave a, uh, leave a positive testimony of the glory of Christ in the state house. That's the idea. And so uh, uh, that instruction about God filling your mouth has to do when you're, when you're hauled before the religious councils. Did I ever tell you about the time I was? I don't have time for that this morning. Uh, some other time. Uh, but I was once uh, held before, uh, held, called before a religious council. One of the earliest experiences in my young preaching life was to be called before a religious council. Uh, I'll tell you about it sometime. Not this morning. Uh, 1920. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Because God will help you on that occasion. Verse 21. And before I read it, let me just say, some of you have experienced this this last week. This kind of problem is accentuated during the holidays. Why? Because families have holiday expectations, oftentimes, that cannot be ever righteously met. And so what happens is you should expect this too. 21, and the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father, the child, and the chi children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And what does that say? That says you should expect conflict and opposition uh, from religious folk, from governmental people, uh, you should expect the aspect of, of opposition uh, coming to you from family members. And just because somebody professes to know Christ doesn't mean they have your best interest in mind in the growth of Christ, especially when they have an agenda. We wouldn't say today that they're killing us, but I have heard some of Christians say, my dad threw me under the bus. My mother threw me under the bus. My brother threw me under the bus. Well, you can survive being under the bus, but it's not a pleasant experience. You know what I mean? I'm just saying the Bible is clear. Jesus is clear that if your life is a shining testimony for Christ, you're going to have some pushback even among your own family. Why can't you people just get along and go along? Why does there always have to be a prayer? Why does there always have to be a Bible verse? Why does there always have to be this thing or that thing? Why does it always have, why does it, why, do, why can't we just get together and have fun? Oh yeah, that's what they used to say about the youth group in the church. Do you understand what Jesus is talking about here? You and I are on team sheep. And the illustration is not mine. It's our Lord's illustration. And he said, I send you forth as sheep 
among wolves. 22, and ye shall be hated of all. Everybody hates me. Is that what that's saying? No. No. On Saturday, Sherry and I frequent a particular restaurant. We have a gal that we identify as our waitress. There's another gal that is there that is about our age, but I'm sure she's there because of economic distress. And uh, she's there, and she uh, cleans up tables, and she pours water, and she assists the waitress that uh, accommodates Sherry and I. And, and this year, Sherry and I bought a little something for the two of them and uh, gave it to them with a good gospel representation, uh, complimentary of the things that we've talked about uh, from here and there and friendly conversation with them along the way. And, uh, and uh, that was uh, two weeks ago. And yesterday, uh, we ate there, and we were both floored because those two gals at the restaurant gave to us gifts they both brought a gift, put it in the restaurant, waited for us to come. They waited two weeks. We showed up yesterday, and Sherry and I were both gifted yesterday by people that don't know the Lord. But I'm praying that they will know the Lord. I'm bothered by the fact that they don't know the Lord but I was gifted by them. So I know this doesn't mean everybody hates you. <laughs> what does it mean? It simply means you're going to be hated by all kinds of people. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to hate you. Oh, one of the great blessings of being a servant of Christ is that you know the Lord loves you and you know that there are people on this earth that love you too. One of the great blessings of being a servant of God is that you know there are people who love you. But as a servant of God, Jesus wants you to know that you will indeed be hated by all kinds of people simply because your light is shining brightly for the Lord. Number three, the moniker bringing opposition against the true follower. Verse 22 goes on to say, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Jesus is a name that blesses, and Jesus is a name that bothers people. And the name of God in modern culture is constantly blasphemed as a matter of casuality 24-7. Whether it's the text, O-M-G, or the advertisement, Oh my Bob. Or it's the newscaster speaking of someone who had a come-to-Jesus moment when it had nothing to do with the Lord Jesus at all. 
There is a name, a beautiful name, that angels have borne on lip for generations. Jesus is a name that blesses the people of God and bothers people. Identification with his name will bring you favor and it will bring you disdain. Number four, the muscle. And this, I guess, would be the most applicable point of this morning's sermon. The muscle needed for the true follower facing opposition. If you look again at verse 22, it says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved, delivered. He that abides under is the word endureth. He that abides under shall be delivered in the end. Uh, that's not talking about saved from your sin. It's talking about being delivered from the aspect of the environment of opposition that is surrounding you because of your clear identification with the name above all names. It's talking about the aspect of, of a day coming when you will be opposed no more because you will be surrounded in the will of God with perfect righteousness and holiness and love forever. That's God's promise to his people. Faithful endurance is required, and it is the mark of one's salvation. Endurance is the evidence, even to yourself, that you are the Lord's. Thinking upon those three animal metaphors relative to the believer, spoken by the Lord Jesus to his servants, sheep, serpent, and dove, led me to a complimentary text of scripture when the Apostle Paul was speaking uh, to the Ephesian elders. Let me just show you that quickly before the hour ends. Uh, uh, Acts 20, I'm sorry, yeah, Acts 20, and uh, I'll pick up reading in verse 28. Acts 20, uh, 28. Paul is speaking uh, to the Ephesian pastors and, uh, and charging them as to how they're going to go about their work. And he says, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, episcopos, to feed the church of God. Primary task of a pastor is to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Paul said, For, this, uh, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch, like a serpent we could say, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn, weariness like a serpent was Paul, Everyone, night and day, with the tears of a dove. Does it say dove? No. Does it say serpent? No. But it's the same principle in the context as Jesus taught it to the apostles. And then you have that beautiful rendition in 32. And now, brethren, and now, fellow pastors, I commend you to God 
and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, strengthen you as a servant of the Lord, and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Give you an inheritance among uh, the saints. And so that little reference in Acts 20 is a beautiful complement to the instructions that Jesus is giving here in Matthew chapter 10. Let me just say one more thing about the text in Matthew 10, and I'll be done. But Jesus then says, of course, verse 21, And when they persecute you, flee uh, ye into another uh, city. For verily I say unto you, uh, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Jesus set before them a clear matter of anticipation of his follow-up. The apostles were sent. They were told it's going to be tough. But they were told that the Lord was coming behind them shortly. And that same spirit of anticipation is set before this local flock this morning as we have been taught of God that he who came comes. And that at any moment, the Lord Jesus could step out on a cloud. It will be Worth it all when? Not good enough. It will be worth it all when? Thank you. That is the motivating hope of the child of God. Father, this morning, thank you for the clarity of the text and the many, many elements of application to us all in every season of the year, including this one. And help our hearts and minds to be filled with thy goodness and thy greatness today in such a way that thy praise would fill our hearts and minds and that with a clear anticipation of your sending the Lord Jesus back for his own, that our hearts would rise in confidence and faith, strength, hope, and love. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.